This morning, um, I want to talk to you guys about the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. If you have a bulletin, you see on the front cover a really cool graphic that Elsie put together for us. Um, and when, I don't even remember what prompted me to actually put this on my calendar, but um, it's one that I have really struggled with for the last couple of weeks as I've looked at this. The, uh, <clears throat> I've looked at many different sections of scripture. I've looked at different theological books. One of the things that I feel very, very insecure in is the fact that I, I don't have a Master's of Divinity degree. I am not a theologian. I don't have a depth of understanding. I have a very basic understanding as far as my Bible college degrees in theology. And I have 35 years of life experience in the Lord and reading the scriptures and studying on my own, but I just don't consider myself a theologian. And I really struggle at times when I have to speak theologically because I wanna make sure that A, I'm speaking clearly, succinctly, and B, that I am not going into Bobisms as opposed to Orthodox Christianity. And um, so I've spent a lot of time talking with people in the last couple of weeks, thinking, praying about this. And even as late as an hour ago, I was sitting over here going, I gotta change this. And I pulled out some stuff and rearranged. So this is, this is a sermon that I'm very uncomfortable with. And that's probably a good thing because that means I'm leaning on God to let him speak through me. But we're going to look at a number of verses of Scripture this morning. Number one, we're going to be looking uh, mainly in, in Ephesians chapter 5. So if you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, um, I read it at the beginning of our service. You probably don't remember because that was over an hour ago. So. But we're going to be reading Ephesians chapter 5 verses 15 through 21. Be very careful then how you live, not and as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You know, this could have been written last week. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and, sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I literally could have gone a full sermon just on these six verses, and we're not going to do that. We're only going to focus on verse 18. Verse 18, let's repeat, let's reread that. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And the interesting thing as I thought about that is why in the world would he choose being drunk to compare? Yes, ma'am. Debauchery is um, living a life of just going out and going, yeah, let's go live and enjoy life and sleeping around and carousing and yeah, gutting and... Reckless actions. In other words, if you get drunk and become a drunkard, 
and lose control of yourself through that outside influence, you most likely aren't going to go around being Mother Teresa. And uh, that's what it's talking about. And the, the thing that's interesting is, is when, you can, when Paul chose those, that, that type of an experience, being drunk and comparing it being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I thought, wow, because I've been drunk. And, and it's, while you're drunk, a pleasant experience. When you get done being drunk, it's not so pleasant. But when you're drunk, you feel really good. And, and you don't really care about much. You're just enjoying the, the moment. And um, being filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't care about anything else but the moment that you're being filled with the Holy Spirit and you're enjoying yourself and it's a good feeling. It, so I think it's a pretty interesting thing that he chose to compare the two. Now, drunkenness and being filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't think both are alike in the fact that as a drunkard, I lose control of who I am. I can choose to submit myself to the Holy Spirit's leading. I can choose to allow him to empower me to work through me. But the scriptures very clearly say the spirit of the prophet. I mean, how did I, I can't say it now. I wanted to, I wanted to quote it. It's, it's that the prophet controls himself. There is no, oh, I couldn't control myself. I just had to say it. It just came out. No, that's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that if God is using you, working through you, that you're still in control. You're not being overtaken. Now, see, there were times in the, in the Old Testament, for example, I can show you the, the, the King Saul, where he fell among the prophets and he basically lost control and became overcome by the Holy Spirit. I can show you in history and also in present day, there are those who experience a, an event through the power of the Holy Spirit, that is today called being slain in the Spirit. Um, it is a very biblical, it is a very historical, it is a very orthodox Christian experience that is nothing that is far-fetched or out of the ordinary, but it is not a norm for everyone. Being slain in the Spirit means that you are so overcome by God's presence that you literally are stunned, if you will. I mean, you just like... Oh, wow. There's a, a book that I was reading in Wesley's journal. Uh, it is Wesley's journal. And an entry in his journal talks of an event where he was preaching and the Holy Spirit came and fell on the crowd. And there was a man who was, they didn't use the terminology back in the 1700s, but who was slain in the spirit. And he was literally carried from the sanctuary to a house next door and for 48 hours laid on the bed. And all he could do was every so often just go, blessed Jesus because he was so overcome with the power of God. So it's a very normal, not necessarily regular experience to be overcome by the Spirit of God. But what does it mean for the normal day-to-day, everyday thing to be filled with God's Spirit, to experience Him? Well, the very first thing I want to talk about is this. If you look in any other translations, you'll see different words for filled with the Spirit. Well, you might not see different words, but there's a nuance that we don't get in English. And what that is, is that the word 
filled, when it's in its original language in Greek, talks about being continually filled. Okay? It is, a, it is not just a one-time event. Paul doesn't say, get filled. He says, continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's a significant difference there. And that's what I was thinking about and chewing on and reflecting on over the last number of days. Um, what does that mean? How can I understand this continual filling of the Holy Spirit? And how does that relate to the idea of being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Aren't they the same? And so I've had to do some reflection. The difference I see between being baptized with the Holy Spirit and being continually filled with the Holy Spirit, I hope to get to by the end of this sermon. But let's start out with the first idea of being baptized. If you read Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, and we'll just quickly turn there. Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. This is the story of John the Baptist beginning his ministry in the wilderness, or involved in his ministry in the wilderness. And in verse 11, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now that's the very first time in the Bible that, we're just, that we hear this phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit. It is used again in the book of Mark, same scenario. In the book of Luke, same scenario. John does not use the same phraseology. So John the Baptist is quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as having said that Jesus is greater than he and that he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, at the end of Jesus' time on the earth, if you go to, back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Jesus, it's the end of his time on this earth. He's getting ready to be ascended into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8 says, On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with the disciples, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then if you turn a page over to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through the first half of that chapter, um, it says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire separate and came to rest on each of them, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit enabled them, and they moved on. Now, um, this idea of baptism. We just witnessed that in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit comes to, to believers in Christ who have not been baptized yet in the Holy Spirit. And it said in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 3 or 4, what did it say that they were, didn't say baptized, it said what? Filled. filled. So there's a synonymous way of using baptism and filling. 
Baptism is the initial receipt of the Holy Spirit. Well, that, let me back this up. Yes, it is, and no, it's not. Yes, it is. This is where I get really stuck with the theology. We receive the Holy Spirit when we get saved. God comes into us and resides with us. The scriptures very clearly teach that. At that and theologically, that would be called initial sanctification. That's the theological term. Initially getting set apart for God, being made holy for God. Okay? But it is, the, it is the life experience of just about any person I've ever met, and I would say every Christian, but I don't have the authority to say every Christian because I've not met them all. But it is the life experience of every Christian I've ever met that just because I'm saved doesn't mean that I don't still struggle with a desire towards sin. There's still something inside of me that just doesn't want to go the way I know I'm supposed to go. The theologians would call this the carnal nature. Therefore, it is possible for a born-again believer in Jesus who has the Holy Spirit present with him to still struggle with a desire towards sin. And then it becomes apparent at some point in that Christian's life that they need a greater work of God in their life other than just having their sins cleansed. They need to be, quote-unquote, baptized or infilled with the Holy Spirit. Did they... Yes. A simple yes. But, but if you talk with a lay person out on the street, they'll say, no, you don't get baptized in the Holy Spirit till after, you know, it gets convoluted. But, and I'm going to pass out a, 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 a piece of paper in just a minute that is going to help totally confuse all of you. Um, <laughs> it's the theological statement of this doctrine that we believe. Um, I don't want to go through it line by line with you, but I am going to give it to you at the end of my sermon so that you can have it and you can chew on it and look at all the scriptures and come back with me with questions. Um, so a person gets saved, they're initially sanctified. They progress in their walk with Christ and they come to an understanding that because of their carnal nature, they're always being drawn away from God's things and always being toward their own selfish desires. And they plead with God to help them in this area. And the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes them um, using that terminology or fills them. At that point in time, using the understanding from what Jesus said, that they would be cleansed and empowered. There's two distinct acts that happen in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The carnal nature is cleansed. It is made back into what is called the imago dei, or the image of Christ, the image of God. And we are told at the very beginning that man was created in the image of God, but because of the fall, that got damaged and broke. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, God writes that broken image of Christ within us. So the carnal nature is no longer at variance with what God wants. It is now brought back into alignment because it's no longer damaged. It's back original, as it was originally supposed to be by the power of God. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit living with you and through you, you are empowered to serve God and do the things that he calls you to do. Okay? So the struggle against sin is righted 
because the image of God is righted within you through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of all of that, you are now empowered by God's Holy Spirit to walk in a life that God calls you to of righteousness, holiness, and purity. And then you progress, okay, in your sanctification until the day you are glorified. So walking along as a sinner, all of a sudden God makes himself known to me and I recognize that I'm a sinner, that I need to ask God for forgiveness and I need to make my life right with him and so I enter into relationship with him through the blood of Christ. I'm initially sanctified. I then progress in my walk with God until I recognize that the image of God is broken and damaged within me and always struggling against what I know to be the right thing and I ask God to fix that and help me and so I totally consecrate my life and the end result is that His Holy Spirit baptizes me, making the image of Christ within me right and empowering me to live the life that He wants me to live. And from that, then that's an instantaneous grace by faith evidence, a thing that happens in our life. It happens in a moment. But then from that point on, we are now living in that experience and living out that experience and the power of God is living through us, empowering us to live the life of holiness and purity and righteousness until finally we're called home and we are glorified and we're given our new bodies and we will never die, okay? That's the theological progression. Now, how does that all really work in real life? Okay, and like I said, I got this piece of paper I'm going to pass to you at the end. You can read all the little fine points and make sure that I didn't get anything wrong. And Laura, who is currently going through all this training, can really fix what I've messed up later on. She'll send out a broadcast email. Okay, but there's something that the Bible uses in, in, a, uh, in one of the... I thought, you know, this might be an easier way to help us to understand what I just told you theologically. What's the difference? And I don't want you to answer the question out loud. I just want you to think. What's the difference between a cistern, a well, and an artesian well? Okay? For those of us living in two rivers, most of us understand these terms. If I were saying this in Los Angeles, they'd be going, ah, I have no idea. Okay? A cistern is a hole in the ground that we dig and that usually we find some way of sealing it with plaster or some other concrete or whatever. But I mean, back then, when the, in the Bible times, they would have used some type of a plaster or something to, to make it watertight. And then they would have to go miles, maybe, to the nearest source of water hauling those bags or jugs of water on their camels or on their donkeys or, or on their own backs and then bring them to this cistern that they've dug and dump the water in. These cisterns are mentioned throughout the scriptures. Where do you think Joseph was thrown into when his brothers were going to get ready to kill him? They threw him into a dry cistern. Okay, it was a hole in the ground that had been dug to hold water and he was down in this dry hole. Why was it dry? because the water had evaporated out of it and nobody had brought new water to fill it, okay? So a cistern is a holding tank that you have to carry the water to, dump it in, and then keep it covered to try and keep as much evaporation from happening as possible. And you have to continually go and fill the cistern. And if you accidentally don't leave it covered and an animal falls in and dies, now all the water in there now becomes diseased and you have to drain that out and clean it out and scour it and start all over again. That's why it's important to keep it covered. 
So there's the issue of keeping it fresh. There's the issue of fighting against evaporation. There's the issue of the hauling and you having to spend energy to get it. It's a long-term process. It's something you've got to account for and keep a regular practice of going in and getting, keeping the water filled into the cistern. So that's one way of understanding how you can have water in your life being filled. Another way that you can, which is much more um, easy on your body and it's a lot more convenient, is if you have the ability to locate water under the surface of where you're living and then you dig down to the water level, you now have ready access to a supply of water. You don't have to go hundreds of miles or tens of miles or scores of miles and haul it back. It's right there. The problem is you've got to figure out a way to get down to it and bring it up to you. Now, back in Jesus's day, we just read with the kids that Jesus went by Jacob's well in the town of Sychar and that they had, the woman apparently had a bucket or something that she had a rope and she threw it down and hauled water up because she said to Jesus, how will you draw water? You have nothing. How will you give me this water? You have nothing to draw it with. So we have this understanding that they would go down with something, a bucket or whatever, and haul the water up to themselves. So that's a well. You've dug a hole in the ground down to the water table or a little below so that you have water that's always in there and then you haul it up. Now, we're smart. We decided to build machines that we put down into our wells that bring the water up for us. So all we have to do is turn on a switch and make sure that the pump is working. And then you just turn on your tap in your house and you've got water. How many of you people live with a well? How many of you people understand that if your well fails, you got to go over to the laundromat and haul your water? Okay? So we live this. We understand this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could find an artesian well here in the Fairbanks area? What is an artesian well? Does anybody know? It, it's pressurized water. There's water that is in some type of a cavity that is like limestone, not cavity, but in some a, a, a strata of ground that's limestone, so it's porous, and the water flows into it and becomes depressurized because the strata on the outside, on either side of this thing of limestone, um, is impermeable so the water gets trapped in the limestone and it's fighting to get out because more is coming in and there's no place for it to go if uh, if you drill a hole down to this aquifer the artesian aquifer all of a sudden you've released the pressure yes ethan exactly 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 so you would need to have a way to control the flow of water, you know. But the reality is, is an artesian well, if the power goes out, you still got water. If the pump fails, you don't got water. So with an artesian well, you've still, well, you get it, I guess, if you had to. So anyway, this is a situation that I, that I was thinking about and chewing on these things. If you don't, you don't have to turn to this. I'll read it for you. But if you look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the prophet Jeremiah says, For my people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water. Hmm, does that sound familiar? God said through the prophet Jeremiah, My people have done two evil things. Number one, they have abandoned me. I'm the fountain of living water. And two, they have dug for themselves cracked cisterns that can hold no water at all. They have separated themselves from the source of living water, 
Living water, in my mind, is water that flows without you having to manipulate it. A constant, always present flow so that you will have what you need. Kind of what Jesus said to the woman at the well. Instead, they've chosen to pull away from the artesian well of God's power and spirit so that they could have their life wherever they wanted it. So they just dug a hole and said, well, I'll haul the water and dump it in. But their cistern is cracked and it will not continue to hold the water. So God holds it against them. A, you separated from me, and B, you're trying to make up for it by having your own little way of reserving, and it's not even adequate enough to meet your needs. Hello? Does this make sense? I don't think so. So bringing this all into this idea of being filled, being baptized, being continually filled, and we're going we're gonna to wind this all up now. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Jesus said he would give us living water, water that would flow and would never, it would cause us to never be thirsty again. It would always be there for us to meet our needs. As Christians, and this may break down in the translation because analogies and metaphors only go so far, okay? As this idea of coming into initial sanctification or salvation, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, progressive sanctification and glorification, if I think about a person with a cistern, someone who's trying to meet the need that they have, but I just can't, ever satisfy it because I'm always having to haul the water. I'm always having to fix the plaster in the inside of the cistern. There's always issues of dead animals falling into the water and it gets all diseased and I have to clean it all out and start all over again. I see that as a person who doesn't know God yet. They're trying with all of their energy to try and fill their lives, that void, with it and they may get little smatterings of it. They walk through the woods and they see the glory of God and all oh, it fills their soul. But it's never satisfying to the point where they just don't have thirst anymore. A person enters into relationship with God, they've dug a well. They now have a ready, accessible point in their life where they can, anytime they want, draw water from that well and drink to their heart's content. But there's energy that they have to put out to do it. Effort that they have to do to get it. A person who is baptized in the Holy Spirit, who submits themselves and says, you know, God, if this is the only spot on this earth where I can be in your presence at all times in the center of your will, then so be it. No longer will I roam. No longer will my will be in charge. No longer will I seek after my own. If this is the only place that the artesian well is possible, then so be it. God, let it spring forth in my life. And by God's grace, the Holy Spirit comes in and flows and continues to flow. And all you have to do is enjoy it. You don't have to work to get it. You don't have to haul it. You don't have to make sure it doesn't seep out or evaporate. You don't have to make sure it doesn't get stagnant. Hold on just a second. You don't have to worry about maintaining it in the sense of trying to keep that pump going. All you have to do 
is position yourself so that God's Holy Spirit will continue to flow. Because if, if the artesian well is here and the flow is this way, and I go, oh, look at that! All of a sudden, the reservoir begins to leak. And I don't understand why, but for some reason, I'm beginning to get thirsty again and not be as satisfied as I was. And my life isn't as good as it was. Oh, God, I, I need to have you. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Hallelujah. Ooh, look at that. Woohoo! That, that's real. Ooh, my goodness, I'm getting thirsty. What's the problem? Oh, God, I need you so bad. Oh, glory to the Lord. Hallelujah. Jesus, look at that. And do you understand? If you don't decidedly plant yourself in a place where God can flow into your life, He's never going to hold you down with nails in your feet to the floor. You have the choice to stay here. And the things that I'm learning, even in just the two weeks that I've been taking this class on spiritual formation, is that if I choose as a Christian to position myself through prayer, through reading of God's word, through being quiet before God, through fasting, through corporate worship, through being accountable to another Christian by meeting regularly with them. All of these positions, if you will, keep me right over the aquifer opening so that the flow of the Holy Spirit is never diminished because of my carelessness. So there is an action that I have to take. The action is stay connected to God. And if I don't, then I begin to need refilling. And it's my positioning that determines whether or not I'm always filled and ready for any action. David in his psalm, I mean his prayer this morning, we said, with God, I can scale any wall. With God, I can press through any barricade. He is my rock. He is my deliverer. He is the one. But when I step out and try on my own, in my own strength, without God, that's when I start failing and having problems and when sin begins to keep creeping back in. And that's this idea of, in my mind, a cistern, a regular well, an artesian well, and how it relates to who we are as Christians. I, I, Sonia, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I didn't want to mess up the thought that I was trying to... Pers are you still okay? I'm, do you still have a question? Okay. Anybody else? I, I would just like to say, don't you think that it's in that place that we are working out our salvation? We're getting that peace that passes all understanding. We're able to pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things. Those things that as in our day-to-day -day walk with the Lord, we don't really understand that. But when we're in that spot, that's just the result of what happens when that living water is flowing through you. And even in our witness, people see that and they say, hey, what is that? I want some of that. And they're drawn to that. And then again, we're spilling out on those mm -hmm. who are around us, which is furthering down the kingdom of God. Yes, I agree. Anyone else? Questions or comments? Well, 
I hope that helped. <laughs> um, can I ask John, would you be willing to pass these out? And uh, Kara, would you pass these out? These are copies of Article of Faith number 10 from the Church of the Nazarene Manual, which is a statement of our belief, our history, and our polity. Um, this is a theological statement. It is wordy. It is hard to just sit down and just read at one setting, but I wanted to give you this to look at, um, to think about, to chew on. There's lots of scriptures at the bottom that talk about the various terms that are used. And just to give you an understanding, if you're not familiar, you're going to notice some footnotes at the bottom of each page. And what it says is that there have been revisions made to this particular article of faith at the last General Assembly that have not yet been ratified by all the districts of the Church of the Nazarene. And until they are, they cannot be fully incorporated as our doctrinal statement. And so you'll see parts of these statement being the older words and some of this statement being the, the changes that they're making. But at the time of the printing, it hadn't already been fully approved. So let's pray. God, I don't expect that all the answers will be, all the questions will be answered this morning by what has been said. But I do pray that you have piqued interest and that you have started a thirst that may not have already been there. I pray, Father, that you would guide people to scriptures, to fellow Christians, to get into conversations one with another over this topic and to, to see how they can begin to help each other understand the depths of this very, very heady and deep spiritual thing. <laughs> Father God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who has not fully experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment and the cleansing that comes as a result, I pray, Father, that that would become reality for them in the coming days. Yes. Bless us, Lord. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.